This evening we take a little bit of a break from our study of the Revelation and we consider February's edition of our questions and answers. And as always, thankful for those questions and mindful certainly of our desire to use this time to perhaps direct attention to some things that have rested upon your heart as you and I give thought to the Word of God. I know as we try to do this once each month, we certainly try to do it near the end of that month actually. And so it is, we come to this fourth Sunday in the month of February this year, and it brings you to this slide that's now before you, a gentle introduction. You and I are convinced that the Word of God has answers to so many of the things that we face day to day. Sometimes issues that arise in the family, issues that arise in the community, issues that arise even in the nation, and certainly individually matters that certainly rest upon our heart. And so in Romans 4, verse 3, Paul asked this question, What saith the Scripture? And so Paul, though a very brilliant man, he directed attention of those individuals then to a study of and a usage of the sacred Scriptures to answer those matters that were resting upon their mind. Tonight, again, questions that you have offered and made available to me, so I will try to read it exactly as it was worded so that I convey the information that was involved in, in that particular wording of the question. Question number one tonight. Both Enoch and Elijah did not die. Why did God take them instead of allowing them to die? Very interesting question. In fact, as it was worded, and as I'll invite you to notice a few of the statements that I've tried to prepare in light of that slide, the statement was made that both Enoch and Elijah did not die. They passed from the scenes of this life without passing through the channel or the matter, if you please, of death. And the person asked, why did they do this? Why did God arrange things in such a way that that would be characteristic of them? On that slide, may I point your attention to these things. The person who uttered that was exactly on target. In fact, as we come to Genesis chapter 5, we encounter fairly interestingly in that chapter the truth that there was a man named Enoch he was the seventh from Adam that means there wasn't that many generations of people on the planet between the actual creation and when Enoch lived but this much you and I do know there was an increasing character of evil if you please but all that still reminds us that in Genesis chapter 5 the text says that he walked with God he was in essence the friend of God but that God took him. Could I remind you of Hebrews 11, verse 5 at this point? In the heart of the New Testament, we have an inspired New Testament writer who offered these thoughts about Enoch. It says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him, for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. In many ways, that is a powerful commentary on some of the features concerning Enoch. And it's very easy to notice that the text very clearly says that he was translated. The actual original word means he was transferred. Transferred. Sometimes you and I are aware of that today. Perhaps a person who is working at a certain job, and that person's superiors will transfer him or her to another destination to another locale wherein he or she will be expected to contribute to the business. In this instance, the text says Enoch was transferred. He was transferred, and he did not see death. 
May I point out in that light, the next mention was to Elijah. We must arrive all the way at 2 Kings chapter 2 before we encounter Elijah. But in that case, we also find that here was a stalwart defender of the faith. And yet the time came, the text reminds us, that by a whirlwind, he went up into heaven. And he too thus did not pass through the channel of death. Interestingly enough, in those two examples, those are the only ones we have in all the Bible that highlight these that made their way to the other side without dying. And of course, God was behind it in both cases. He was the force that made that take place that way. You and I know that it cannot be just attributed to their faithfulness. We are told in that Hebrews 11 text that Enoch pleased God, and that certainly was a great statement. But isn't it true that Noah pleased him too? Isn't it true that Moses on several occasions was said to have pleased him? May I point out, then, we, we can't just assert that it was due to their faithfulness. It was the will of the God of heaven that for those two, that things work out the way that they did. There's been a lot of faithful people lived throughout the ages. Again, the book of Hebrews mentions a number of them. And yet the fact is, all of them except Elijah and Enoch died. Why is it that God selected those two? Why is it that He chose them in the way that He did? As far as I know, the Bible does not say. It doesn't point out anywhere why He chose those two. I know that we could speculate. We could maybe argue that in light of the increasing evil in the time of Enoch, maybe it was a foreshadowing of what was to come. I don't think that explains it. In the days of Elijah, one could mention about the evil connected to both Ahab and Jezebel and the idolatry that was running rampant in the kingdom and the great defense that Elijah was and had been for the cause of truth. But let's face it, Elisha was a strong prophet as well. Jeremiah and Isaiah were also very bold in their considerations of the, of the faith and yet all of them died. I suppose to get to the point, I do not know why God selected those two the way that He did. And as I mentioned, I'm not aware of any text that in fact aids us by elaborating on, on that point. I will close that slide though by saying this. I do think it's interesting that there's coming a moment and a time when there will be a large transference from this side to the other side. What is it that's going to transpire when Jesus returns? This much we know. There will have been a lot of people died by then, and we know that all the graves are going to be emptied, but may I ask, what about all of those who are alive when Jesus returns? All of them will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52 detail that. And so at that point, there will be a mass transference, if you please, a preparation instantly. And they will not have died. A transfer, if you please, to that particular realm ready for the other side. So at that point, I believe we could say that although the Bible doesn't explain about Enoch and Elijah, we are told in no uncertain terms about the fact there's coming a moment when there will be a large number of those transmitted over to the other side and it'll happen pretty quickly in the twinkling of an eye what about question number two tonight this particular question is worded like this 
Several Bible translations do not have Matthew 23, verse 14 in them. How trustworthy is the presence of this verse? If you'd like to be turning to Matthew chapter 23, we will cast a spotlight upon one of the verses found in that chapter. Matthew chapter 23, verse number 14. As you're turning to that location, may I say that this is certainly a chapter that brings a number of matters to mind, one of which is this. It is perhaps that chapter most well known for the Lord's very strong and direct rebuke of the Pharisees and of the scribes. In fact, throughout the course of that chapter, the Lord had many things rather accusatory to say to them, things that they were not doing appropriately right, and the kind of perspective they were bringing that certainly needed to be done differently. However, it isn't the generalities of the chapter that the person has asked about. We were asked about specifically verse 14 of that chapter. May I go ahead and read it and then devote several minutes of time to reflect a little bit on the thoroughness of that single verse. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. And stopping at that point, again, the person has asked the question, that verse is not in some translations of the Bible. It is in the one I just read, of course, in our hearing. That leads me to point out a few things on that slide. First of all, as you read through the King James translation, that verse is there and there is no indication that there's any issue or problem with it. However, look at the sentence just beneath that one. If you're reading in the American Standard Version of 1901, that verse does not appear at all. It jumps immediately from verse 13 to verse 15. In addition to that, if you're reading in the ESV, you also will find that verse is not there. So at this point, we're beginning to find a bit of confusion. We can understand why the individual at least directed the question the way that it was asked. May I add a few more things to it? In the sentence just below that one, though, could I point out that in the ESV and in the ASV of 1901, there is a footnote. And that footnote reads as follows. Some authorities insert, and then the insertion is the very verse you and I just read. So although the text does not appear in the ASV or in the ESV, there's a footnote indicative of the fact that there are some authorities that do insert it. That's interesting, isn't it? May I also point out that if you look at the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, you also will find that that verse does not appear. But there is a different footnote. And that footnote reads like this. This verse is not found in early manuscripts. Well, by now we haven't answered anything, but we have clouded the issue, I suppose, a bit more. There are some reliable translations that do not have it such as those I mentioned, others that you and I cherish, such as the King James, that do have it. No wonder the person asks, is that verse reliable? Can we have a degree of trustworthiness with regard to the appearance of Matthew chapter 23, verse number 14? As you close that slide with me, I'll just simply point out, it's easy then to see a question that prevails relative to that verse. Let me offer you a few more thoughts, if I might, and those are the ones that now appear before you. In order to perhaps amplify one of the comments I just made, 
let's dip back into looking at some of the ancient manuscripts for just a moment and see about the appearance of Matthew chapter 23, verse 14. First of all, in the Codex Sinaiticus, which as you and I have noted in, in a few sermons in recent months, that's one of the oldest manuscripts, Greek in nature, that we have of the New Testament. In that particular manuscript, Matthew 23, 14 does not occur. That verse, that particular passage is not to be seen. May I point out that that particular Codex Sinaiticus is dated in the 4th century. That's in the 300s A.D. So we're only a couple of hundred years past the actual compilation of the New Testament, and the verse is not found. That's interesting. However, what about a famous Latin text? So this would have been one of the earliest of the Latin translations, dated from the 4th century, the so-called Virgili text. Matthew 23, 14 does not occur in that one either. What about another one? As you look into the Syriac text of the 4th century A.D., which again is dated in the, in the 300s, Matthew 23, 14 does not occur. In a rather highly regarded Coptic text, again, of the 3rd century, Matthew 23, 14 is not to be found. Now at this point, we may be coming to a conclusion but may I suggest we not be too hasty. Here are some old manuscripts, translations, among other things, and they insist, they lead us to suppose that this text should not, in fact, be in place. But there is another side to this coin. Just beneath that set of comments, may I ask you to note another one. If you look at another rather highly regarded Greek ancient manuscript, the so-called Washingtonius text, dated from the 4th century. The text does occur. Matthew 4, 23, 14 is there. And notice, that's not that long after the other Greek text we noted a moment ago. What about another Latin one? The rather famous arrangement of the so-called Latin witnesses, dated from the 3rd century. In this one, Matthew 23, 14 is there. Would you go ahead and notice what we've said? Here's one old Greek manuscript where it's not there. Here's another old Greek manuscript where it is there. Here's one old Latin manuscript where it's not there. Here's a set of other old Latin manuscripts where it is there. The Syriac is no better. If you look at the Syriac rendition of the 5th century, the verse is there. And notice that's not dated that much after the Syriac one to which we referred earlier. Finally, there's an ancient Coptic text, highly regarded, dated from the 3rd century, and the verse is there. You might be quick to say, well, we haven't answered anything then. We have these old manuscripts, and it's in some of them, but there are some that are basically just as old, and it's not in them. May I reach at least a bit of a conclusion? It would appear from fairly strong evidences some of which are internal to the context itself, that would lend a fair amount of support to the occurrence of the passage. There are also external evidences, because some of those matters I just noted about those other ancient manuscripts, there are times that one can in fact appreciate from them that it's not at all unusual to appreciate some issues that might have arisen. So whether the evidence be internal whether it be external, whether it be historical, or whether it be contextual. I would point out it seems as if there's fairly strong evidence 
that you and I can have high confidence that Matthew 23, 14 should be in the text. And so I would encourage each of us, when we read that chapter, let's not leave out verse 14, if at all we can. But there is one thing I would think that's interesting to note. In some of those translations I noted earlier, wherein we do find it, sometimes it's not after verse 13. It's before verse 13. In other words, as you're reading through the chapter, this, which you and I have in verse 14, actually occurs at verse 12. And then the other passage goes on from that point forward. But at the very least, isn't it interesting that this question was a good one? One last thing I might point out, there isn't anything unscriptural about it. It is almost verbatim presented in Mark 12, verse 40, and Luke 20, verse 47. So two of the other gospel accounts have it practically verbatim as what is in Matthew 23, verse 14. I hope that we've given some attention to at least that verse. And may I again remind us, we can have confidence that I would think that this verse should be in the original text and we can study it without any difficulties. What about question number three? Question three reads as follows. Why did Jesus change the name disciple to apostle? And reference was made to Luke chapter 6, verses 13 to 16. And then furthermore, the question was asked, what is the meaning of each of these words? So again, we're going to spend a few moments and think a bit about both disciples and apostles and what it was that was said about them. Would you be turning to Luke chapter 6? That is the passage that our person referred to us. And in that passage, it again reads as follows. I'll begin reading in verse number 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. And so the person has asked us about the thoroughness of verse number 13, the distinction that occurs between the word disciple and the word apostle. Beginning near the top of what's before you, may I just offer a definition? That which con has connotation to what you and I notice in light of the presentation of the Word of God. First of all, that word disciple literally means one who directs his mind to something. It identifies one who is a pupil, one who is a learner. And isn't it interesting that we appreciate so many references to the, to the disciples of Jesus the Christ. But may I be quick to say that we also see disciples in other contexts, and I've listed three of them for your consideration. For example, in John chapter 3, verse 25, John the Baptist had disciples. In other words, they were pupils of John the Baptist. They sought to learn from him, to adopt his viewpoint and philosophy, and to abide by the kind of teaching that he presented. Not only that, in John 9, verses 28 and following, we find there a reference to the disciples of Moses. Moses had disciples. That is to say, there were those in the time of the Lord 
who sought to connect themselves to what Moses had taught, and thus they chose to align themselves in that way and be described as disciples of Moses. Finally, in Matthew 22, verse 16, we notice that the Pharisees had disciples. That is to say, there were those who sought to learn from the Pharisees and adopt their perspective and to pursue that which they commanded. I think it's easy then to conclude from that brief discussion that a disciple is a learner, a pupil, someone who tries to learn from his or her master and to imitate them. Surely you and I would desire to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to be those who learn from Him, to be those who strive to be pupils of His, to be those who turn our mind to that which He Himself teaches. What about the word apostle? The word apostle literally has this set of ideas involved in it. It has to do with one who is sent on a mission. And not only sent, but one who is provided and given full authority in light of that mission. You and I have already noticed. By the time we arrive at Luke chapter 6, there were already a number of disciples of Jesus. After all, by this point, he had preached the great Sermon on the Mount. He had already had a great influence in light of many things he had already done so that others could see. There were already those that were his disciples, but from that group, he selected twelve. And he gave them a commission. He sent them, if you please, with full authority on a mission, and that again has to do with this idea of the apostles. It is interesting that the word apostle is given a rather careful restriction in several passages of the New Testament. For instance, in Luke 11, verse 49, in Ephesians 3, verse 5, and in Revelation 18, 20, in every case, the apostles are singled out, highlighted in some instances as foundational to the work of the church, highlighted in the interest of being given a specific commission, the ones specifically that the Lord gave them. I found it a bit interesting in preparing for this, that the word apostle does not occur anywhere in the writings of John. Not in the Gospel of John, not in the books of 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John. Now you and I realize it does occur in the Revelation, so that would be the one exception, I guess. But isn't it interesting, not in the Gospel according to John do we find the word apostle. Somewhat amazingly, and this is one of the last things you notice there, we notice that there were qualifications to be an apostle. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 1? And we'll cast a spotlight on verse 22. Acts chapter 1, verse number 22. You may remember with me that by this point Judas had taken his life, Judas is carried, and thus there were only 11 apostles at this particular moment, but borrowing from some prophecies of the Old Testament, you may recall that there was an insistence that there would be the appointment of somebody to bring the number back up to 12. And it was in that context that we encounter verse number 21. Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of His resurrection. So you'll notice not anybody could just apply to be an apostle. 
there was at least two particular matters highlighted in the text. First, it had to be a person that was an eyewitness of the Lord's resurrection. It couldn't be somebody that just knew about it on hearsay or by the instruction of someone else. They had to have been an eyewitness of it. Secondly, you'll notice it had to be someone who had had company with Jesus and with His teaching since the days of of the baptism of John. And thus those two highlighted these qualifications that had to be satisfied in order for a person to become an apostle. As you and I well recall, as the chapter ended, of course, they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. And that brought the number of the apostles back to twelve. But I would quickly say this. There's a somewhat broad way, in a broad sense, in which the word is applied to some others who, again, were given a particular sending or a particular work. I suppose I have in mind particularly Acts 14, verse 14. As you arrive at that point, roughly the middle part of the book of Acts, you learn that Barnabas was called an apostle. Now you and I know he is not listed in Matthew chapter 10, that is to say, one of the original twelve. He is not listed also in Mark's version, nor is he listed in Luke's version. Nor is he listed in Acts chapter 1. In all those places, we have these particular detailed listings of the apostles, and Barnabas isn't listed in any of them. That leads me to say this. There came to be a broadness connected to anyone in the apostolic era that was sent out on a particular mission of preaching. You may remember that Barnabas was Paul's companion on the first missionary journey. And it was in that sense... That, that early work, the church at Antioch sent him on that missionary journey. And in that sense, he was called an apostle. But he was not one of the original twelve. Somewhat interestingly, that helps us again see a little bit about the distinction between the particular references. And so we can continue some of, of that by noting these comments. Think again about the disciple as well as the apostle. First of all, all followers of Jesus would quite frankly be disciples. No matter in what age they live, in what time period they may be, so you and I today are still disciples of the Lord, seeking to learn of Him, to be pupils of Him, to be learners of Him. But you and I should know we are not apostles. You and I cannot meet the qualifications set forward in Acts chapter 1. We have long since lived past the time of the Lord's resurrection. None of us saw it in an eyewitness way. Furthermore, we weren't alive to be a part of the Lord's teaching ministry. So in that sense, we may well be disciples, and that we are. But we are not apostles. Jesus gave those apostles some pretty special powers. You remember the list with me in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse number 1. He gave them power to heal diseases. You and I can't do that. He gave them power to cast out demons. We can't do that. He gave them power to raise the dead. We can't do that. There's a great distinction then you can well appreciate between the original selection of the twelve. Those apostles who were to be the initial ones that would follow the teaching of the Lord. After all, when Jesus ascended back to heaven, those twelve were the primary force 
behind the ongoing continuance of the Lord's ministry. And they began to work from that area in Jerusalem outward. I suppose then it would be fair to say that all apostles would be disciples, but not all disciples were apostles. And I hope that helps a little bit in regard to both the idea of the disciple and the idea of the apostle. Question number four. In question number four, the person asked this question. When should we pray for ourselves for the forgiveness of sins? And then there's a follow-up question. Regarding the forgiveness of sins, when should we ask for someone else to pray for us in public and why? That's another very good question. As always, the questions are splendid, very interesting, and very powerful, and very much indicative of our desire to know that which is the teaching of the will of God. So what about this question? Again, when may I pray for myself in light of sins that I have committed and in order to obtain the forgiveness the Lord has to offer? On the other hand, when should I ask someone else to pray for me? Let's see if we can make consideration of it following that which is on the slide before you. We begin by noting that all are guilty of sin. We notice in 1 Kings 8 verse 46, even as the ancient writer Solomon would put it, there's no man that sinneth not. We furthermore notice in Paul's famous writing of Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And John would say it this way, to the man that says he has no sin, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. So it goes without saying. We understand that we each are guilty of it. And notice, once a person obeys the gospel, it does not change the truth of that statement. However, the next statements come like this. If there is the reality of sin, that which is needful and that which is required is for that sin to be forgiven. You know, sometimes we realize there are things that happen and they just deteriorate over time. You know, maybe a mistake occurs, but the manner in which it was made in that article in which it appeared, it just deteriorates over time. And finally, the time will come that not only is the article gone, but then there's no evidence for the mistake. Sins do not act that way. A sin committed 40 years ago, if it has never been forgiven, that sin is just as still in the mind of God as it ever was. Sins have to be forgiven. They don't just slide away in time. God doesn't somehow forget them. It is a matter that has to be dealt with. And so the person who asked the question certainly pointed us to give thought to what then about the matter of forgiveness? Perhaps it would be fair to say there are some sins which are quite private. And by that I mean it may well be nobody else on earth knows about it. I'll offer you at least some consideration about that. In Proverbs 24, verse number 9, we notice there's a quite private sin that's highlighted. A foolish thought is sinful. If it's a thought, who else knows about it unless you tell them? Nobody. Any of us could be guilty of a foolish thought. Any of us could be guilty of that particular matter that God would deem under the category of foolishness. May I say that's only one example. What about this one? 
In 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, the love of money is the root of all evil. I realize there may be times that's evident. You could see it in the life of somebody else because of their choices in light of their money. But would that always be true? It'd be easy enough for a person, I would suppose, to have this inordinate love for money and nobody might well know it but them. Now, probably over time it will become evident, but at least when it first starts, when the devil's first beginning to wreak havoc in the person's life, I would think it'd be fairly easy for nobody to know about it. What about another one? In Galatians 5, verse number 20, we read about things such as jealousy. An improper jealousy. I would think, too, that would be pretty easy to conceal. Nobody may know about that unless you say something about it, unless you behave in some way to make it apparent. I'm just going to point out, due to the essence of thinking, and Jesus himself in Mark chapter 7 highlighted evil thoughts. It'd be awfully difficult then to appreciate that if, unless the person actually tells you. Let's continue that list like this. What about dissension? You notice in Galatians 5 verse 20, that is expressly said, it'll condemn you and me to hell. Dissension. That is to say, this division that God frowns upon, to have somewhat ought against our brothers and sisters in Christ without cause. He adds to that this, factions. This issue again of open division. Now, you and I realize that will become evident at some point, but what about when it first gets started? In somebody's mind, in their way of thinking, it's wrong, but you may not said a word about it yet. What about another example? What about private language? Is there ever a time you might be by yourself, nobody else around, and you say something, perhaps a curse word or something else, nobody knows it? Have you committed a sin? You sure have. It's not the fact that someone else hears it that makes it wrong. God always hears it. It doesn't matter if any other human is around or not. The point is there are some sins that are private. Not a single other human being may well know about them. But could I point out there's clearly a sins that are public. Others might well know about it, and you may not have to say a word about it. They can detect it, decipher it. They can be aware of it by virtue of your behavior by virtue of your conduct, your language. I've listed a few examples of those as well. Public dancing. I think that's pretty evident. You've got to be with somebody else, a person of the opposite gender, and there's going to have to be somebody around to take note of it in the sense of appreciative of it. Clearly, that's a public one. Well, what about this one? Fornication. Illicit sexual intercourse. Doing that which is improper from a standpoint of sexuality. Again, you got to do it with somebody. May I point out again, we have appreciated that's the kind of a thing that's public. What about this one? Wrath. The, the presentation of, the consideration of this violence that comes along with matters connected to that. Will others be aware of it? They certainly could be. To that list, I would add immodesty. If we dress improperly, there are other eyes watching us. That's partly what makes it so wrong. There are others whose matter of connection to God by way of godliness has been harmed by the improper way we've chosen to dress. That's clearly a public one. What about divisions? 
I mentioned before, there was a certain aspect of that that's private. Paul highlights, however, a public aspect of it as well. When open division occurs and brethren can't get along, sometimes churches split over improper things. That's clearly something evident and quite visible. Strife is also included in that list of Galatians chapter 5. And those are just a few samples. I mention all that to say some sins are public and others are private. That has a great bearing, it would seem, on answering your question. And so on this slide, may I in fact invite us to consider as far as the Word of God seems to suggest it to us and to present it to us. It is the expectation of God that sins be confessed only to the degree of which their knowledge is apparent. May I say that a bit differently? If there's a private seed in your life or mine, what avail is it to the church to know about that detail? Is it a matter of, of, of significance to them? I know of no verse that would say that it is. I know of no verse that would teach that it has to be confessed in a public way. But an individual guilty of private sin in repentance and in absolute godly sorrow needs to go to God in prayer. In the words of Matthew chapter 6, to do so recognizing the privacy. God's the one who knows about it and before Him we need to confess it. Now if a sin is public, if there are others that know about it, they need to know we've changed and they need to know we've repented and they need to know we're serious about this. It's true, we could go to each and every one of them individually, talk to them, share with them, but may I say that it seems that certainly one thing that is a matter of efficiency, but it's also a matter of benefit from another perspective. We may ask an assembly of the church to pray for us and to make confession before them and to make acknowledgement before them of these errors and to beseech their prayers. Now may I say, we have an example in Acts chapter 8. You remember the scene. Simon had wanted to buy the capability of passing on the power of the Holy Spirit. That was a public one. He had to ask Peter to do it. And Peter rebuked him. Your heart isn't right. And Simon said, pray for me. May I say that kind of a pattern you and I merely try, try to follow. If we've been guilty of a public sin, it would be proper then to invite that group of people those whom we want to be like and those whose prayers we cherish, that we invite them to pray for us. It is for that reason, again, we have that particular example and we have that text of James chapter 5, verse number 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I would be quick to say that even if a person had a private sin and maybe it's something with which you're battling. It wouldn't be inappropriate to ask brethren, pray for my strength. The temptations come hard. I want you to pray for my encouragement and my steadfastness and to pray that I'll have the strength when those moments of temptation come. It wouldn't be inappropriate even in a private way to invite and beseech prayers of brethren. But may I say that it seems the Bible doesn't demand that we confess the, t the, the details before them. 
All of that allows us to close that fourth question and to close our lesson tonight. This conclusion slide is just a very quick rehearsal of some of that which we've seen. Bible questions and answers. We have turned our attention to these particular four questions tonight in which we talked a bit about Enoch and Elijah and their transference to the other side. And though God doesn't tell us the reason why He selected them, we can rest assured that He did. And maybe it reminds us of God's power to overwhelm the reality of death, if nothing else. We also noticed Matthew chapter 23, verse 14, and how that we can have confidence in the occurrence of that passage in the Word of God. In the third place, we looked at the discussion of disciples and apostles and noticed there was an interesting distinction between them. And finally, we turned our attention to the matter of the extent to which confession of sins needs to be made, private versus public, and the issues that go along with it. Tonight, as we would wish to extend the Lord's invitation, we do so desirous of always following the Lord's teaching if there's someone that's never become a Christian. Oh, how Jesus died for you and me. He extended the power of the cleansing nature of His blood to all of us, and we need to avail ourselves of it. You need to believe in the Lord and repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And if we could be of assistance at this time, it would be our joy and delight. If you have known the way of Christianity, but perhaps you have gotten trapped into a kind of life of habitual sin, thinking about things, dealing in matters in which you ought not. You need to deal with that at once. If it's a private thing, if we could be of help, I'd say certainly let one of the elders, myself, know we'd be honored to assist however we might. If it's a public thing tonight, won't you confess it and repent of it? And won't you allow us to make a prayer to God on your behalf? We tonight would wish to assist in any way that we might. Brother Larry has chosen a song of encouragement. If we could help right now in any of these ways, we would wish to do it. While together we stand and while we sing.